You're listening to the official Dietitian Connection podcast. This podcast gives you access to the most successful and influential experts in the dietetic profession. This podcast will inspire you, it will challenge you, and it will empower you to become a nutrition leader and realize your dreams. Hello to all of our listeners and welcome to another episode of the Dietitian Connection podcast. I'm your host, Kate Agnew, and we are just about to be joined by Associate Professor Tim Crow. You may know Tim Crow as the brains behind Thinking Nutrition, a website that provides credible evidence-based articles on the latest nutrition news in a simple yet engaging way. Tim is also an accredited practicing dietitian and academic within the School of Exercise and Nutrition Sciences at Deakin University in Melbourne, Australia. Tim, welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast. How are you going today? I'm very well and thank you for having me on for a chat today, Kate. Thank you for being here. It's such an honor to have you on the show and I must admit I am a little bit starstruck but uh, very much looking forward to this. So, oh, well, That's, that's lo- lovely of you to say so. I'm, I'm very happy to be chatting, chatting to students and to, to talk about what I'm very passionate about in nutrition. So if we can inspire and help out a few people, I'm more than happy to do it. So thank you for those lovely words to start with. <laughs> that's great. So we'll crack on. Um, so if someone was to ask you who is Tim Pro, what would you say? Uh, I have generally described myself as an academic research nerd tragic. Uh, I get far too excited uh, about nutrition and how I communicate and what I want to read about it, and that will come through in, in, in all of the things I do. So I, I consider myself a car-gearing academic who has a, a view uh, and thoughts about everything to do with all different areas of nutrition and who who is excited about it and likes to get other people excited about it as well, but is always very firmly evidence-based and never gets out of bed in the morning unless there's a randomised control trial to tell him that it's safe to do so. That's awesome, Tim. <laughs> Um, so tell me a little bit more about your overall aims of thinking nutrition, um, which is something I read every morning and also your philosophy around nutrition. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good question. I've been involved in nutrition for for many decades as mostly from the research side of of things. Uh, Over the years, I've had more of an opportunity to get involved with the media and also uh, with a lot of writing work. And then I began thinking nutrition via my my, my blog initially, then uh, on Twitter and then into Facebook as a way of just having another avenue of uh, nutrition communication where I could control all of the content or I could add in my own editorial views on things, just as a small way to add just an additional voice to, at the time, a lot of misinformation that you see in social media. Uh, And over the years as it's gone through, the following has has built and built and built and the reach has grown, which makes me want to be doing it more and more. So it's all done purely for non-commercial reasons. There'll be nothing, no products ever being sold through Thinking Nutrition. Uh, It's about just providing some good, credible, evidence-based information that people can choose to to read, can choose to adopt in their own lifestyles, and hopefully give a bit of balance to some of the crazies that are out there on the internet and social media, promoting all sorts of weird and wacky views. (laughs) Excellent, Tim. And you've got the serious side of it, but you also make hilarious puns and also um, really great sense of humor. So that mixes really well and makes it really 
interesting and engaging um, articles to read on your site. So uh, at least that's what I've gained from it so far. That's that's what I'm like. Uh, my my top tip for social media: inject a bit of yourself into it. I've got a very uh, quirky, eclectic sense of humour, so it's not for everyone taste, everyone's taste, but that's fine. They can always unlike it and move on to somewhere else. But I try and inject a bit of my own personality and life into it. It makes it more interesting for me. And obviously, for some of my readers, they like that side of it, so they keep coming back for more content. That's great, Tim. And also for everyone listening, I'll link you to the Thinking Nutrition website in the show notes if you haven't already checked it out. So this this probably comes up quite often, but I, I really wanted to talk about this particular article that you posted last year, um, the Toxic Broccoli article. So for those who didn't read the whole story, which of course was the whole point, um, what was the main message you were trying to convey and what do you think this means for us as dietitians? This was a massive learning experience for me. It was my first experience of actually going viral on the internet. And by viral, I mean massive, massive exposure. Uh, I wrote the the post Toxic Broccoli, and that was the headline warning people how toxic broccoli was for you, as a way to show that you can build a case for any particular food uh, being toxic or harmful for you by just selectively citing the research. And and the, the article clearly set it up from the beginning sentence in the beginning couple of paragraphs and I got into the main body of the article about how broccoli is toxic for you which by the way just in case anyone's listening it is not toxic it's an awesome vegetable to be eating and then I finished up with a big commentary about how nutrition messages can be misconstrued it went viral because the amount of people just saw the headline and then treated all of the text in the article as just annoying text they had to scroll through to get to the comments box to vent um, it wasn't intentionally done to mislead people, but a lot of people just saw the headlines, saw it in their social media feed and commented on it. And it actually made me realize how powerful these just little memes that we see throughout the day through media headlines, through social media headlines, through Instagram posts and hashtags can subtly influence us. And that is why nutrition is so confusing. So while it did create some confusion, I've got close over to over half a million reads of the article. It it maxed out at 10,000 shares on Facebook within about three or four days. So it was great for exposure. It was great to see how you can get traffic to a site. But if you're intentions are quite uh, mischievous you could create a lot of traffic and get a lot of people coming to your business if you just wanted to intentionally confuse them which is what some people do do so i learned a lot from it i probably wouldn't repeat the headline but it was great just to see how much we are influenced by small sound bites rather than much bigger mm. messages. And do you think that's also how the uh, interpretation of science becomes a really important aspect aspect in what we do as dietitians? Uh, absolutely. If you look at communication 101 for the public and you, you get you get a no stronger hint than how you deal with the media, it really is about about sound bites, having catchy phrases and quotes that connect with people in that instant. There is a time and a place for long articles that are well-referenced and, and critique randomized control trials and meta-analysis. There is a space for that. But for the public, nutrition is just one of many different things they're exposed to each day. So there is nothing wrong with having very short, sharp, targeted, and catchy grabs that gets people attention. And mentioned, you don't have to, to lie, you don't have to be intentionally misleading, but adopt some of the strategies that the, the others are using. And if they're throwing it around the words, this is toxic and this is going to cure you of cancer, how can you turn that type of messaging without making stuff up to get people's attention? So the toxic broccoli post was a good example of that, that it can work if it's um, uh, 
sort of massage the right particular way to get the right message out rather than just add more confusion to the mix. I'd hate to see a drop in broccoli sales because yes. of the post. Yeah. And um, on that topic, I really wanted to chat a bit more about your writing style. So your articles are very straightforward and you've got a few mechanistic details in there for some of the studies that you report on. Um, but you do a great job of combining the black and white with an element of storytelling. And of course, as I mentioned earlier, your really good quality puns. So uh, what is your secret behind this and how do you, and uh, sorry, do you have any tips for listeners who want to develop their own unique writing style? Oh, well, I reckon your nice little introduction that has captured the, the elements that, that I focus on. So my, my tips for having a more uh, engaging writing style about science, but still staying true to all of the, the, the research behind it is to be more black and white. Uh, as, as you know, as scientists and as dietitians, we are, we, are, we are true scientists. We like to qualify many of our statements and that has its role to play within science. But for the public, we need to be a bit more black and white about things. Now, you still have to at least portray that there is, you know, debate, that there is some differences in opinion and the research is never, you know, truly formed that we know exactly what's going on. But the public do like to have something they can take away rather than the long-winded statements that, that, you know, X and Y may be associated with each other in particular groups and we need more research in the future before we know what's going on. That doesn't really appeal to anybody. So be more black and white. Uh, be positive about whatever research, whatever topic you've got you're talking about, look at the positives, acknowledge there are some negatives, so whether that's the downside of what the research field is saying. And a big one is focus on the relevance, not just the evidence. The evidence has its role, but the evidence will never sell a story completely. It's the relevance to a person that matters. And that is why an individual story of somebody following fad diet X or taking a particular product or a supplement and getting Y outcomes will connect much stronger with, with the public than a randomized controlled trial because it's a personal story. So use some level of storytelling and some anecdotes in your message and that will connect uh, much, much better. And finally, write how you speak. Uh, it is perfectly okay to begin sentences with the word and. It is not an illegal grammar rule. And we actually be speak like that. I just began a sentence then with the word and if you go back and listen to it. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you told me that, Tim. I thought that was an unwritten rule. No, it's it's not. It, it, is, it is okay to start with an end. I don't use it all the time, but sometimes for writing style, it actually works really well. Little things like that. So write more like you speak rather than like what a scientist write, which is just terrible. The worst form of writing is, is scientific writing for a journal. And that's what people like myself are trained at. It takes a long time to, have, to beat that out of us to then communicate in a different way for the public. So, so blogs, we all have a different style. We all do it to different extents, but write more like you speak. Write as if you're writing for your nana and you reckon your nana could understand what you're writing. Well, you're definitely doing it right. <laughs> So that leads me to my next question. You recently posted a little bit about how academics often keep their research within their circle of academics and don't necessarily, um, I guess, uh, share it with the public or, as you said before, like the practicality of the research to the public. I wanted to chat a little bit more about that and also how do you think, you know, looking into the future, how dietitians can sort of bridge the gap between evidence and practice? 
Yeah, that's a really good point. So the article was about academics, but you could say you know anyone that has a strong research uh, base for that for their career can fall into the same sort of trap. Uh, it's what gets. It's what informs our practice in many ways. We are always evidence-based, despite the fact, you know, there's lots and lots of gaps in our evidence and the evidence is always not of the best quality, but it's what we, we, we strive for as practitioners and fully support that and we should keep doing it. Uh, when it comes to uh, dealing with the public or to the, the wider audience, purely being a scientist and communicating like a scientist will only get you a very small audience. For the, for the broader public, it is much better to consider communicating in a much more free-flowing style. And I've given you a couple of tips already of how potentially you could go about doing that. And the more dietitians, nutrition scientists, people from this ilk that get involved in doing this, the better the outcomes will be. Because number one, the public will get more of a consistent message from professionals. Sure, we may debate a little bit about particular dietary approaches and the evidence for X and Y, but it's a very, very small bit around the edges. It'll be a fairly consistent message. And the more of these messages they hear, that, that will drown out a lot of the really crazy, wacky and highly commercially influenced messages that they're currently reading from all sorts of instant nutrition experts just because they know how to read the side of a cereal box. So um, looking back, what do you think has been the key experiences and events that has shaped your work as an educator and also a nutrition writer and commentator? So for me, my first big big break in the area of, of media and communication came from the opportunity to do my first media interview in, in the early 2000s and at the same time do some writing for Norman Swan from the ABC Health Report. So I started writing for his, one of his publications. Without those opportunities, which I was really bad at to begin with, more opportunities wouldn't have arisen. So I had the advantage of many, many years of getting more experience, more exposure to writing and communicating for the public. If I hadn't have done that, I'd still be you know, a, a good researcher in nutrition, but my area of influence would be just amongst my peers, and I'd do good research that perhaps would be cited by one or 200 people. Now, because of those opportunities, I have the you know, potential reach for millions of people through the sorts of messages I do. And from that, I encourage other, other dietitians to get involved similarly, so we have more of these voices out there communicating good science and good nutrition messages in an as engaging way as works for you as a, as, and your personality as possible, just to add to the credible base of nutrition. Because in today's age, everybody is a nutrition expert, but there's only few of us, a few of us that really could consider ourselves experts and they should be the ones communicating, uh, not the chefs, celebrities and lawyers of the world through their social media following. Yeah, mm -hmm. excellent, Tim. And I was just going to say, and now you're on buses as well. <laughs> I've made it to the inside of a, of a tram, which is about as big as it gets, the, the inside of a tram. We've got my picket there for a podcast I did, so that's big time. In, uh, in Melbourne. <laughs> that's right, in Melbourne. It was part of a Deacon promotion for uh, tram talks. So the idea of doing some active learning while you're commuting on the tram, they had different Deacon academics doing short little three or four minute podcast sound bites that people could tune into while they're on the tram. So I was... Uh, one of the people profiled in that. So that's that's massive. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> so what do you think are the future growth areas, both in dietetics research and in practice? Okay, so for, for dietetics research, uh, I touched upon this earlier, that we are an evidence-based profession, but the evidence to inform many of the things we do is is quite low, is quite poor, and it changes over time. So there, there's a, a lot of scope to have much stronger evidence for many of the nutritional interventions that we do. And we need good dietitians actually 
being involved in the research in that area. So there's many dietitians that want to do the research, but there's a lot of barriers to their entry. And it's another thing I do outside of the, the social media world is I'm involved with a lot of research with dietitians to mentor and to encourage them to work in the research field and to publish good research that can ultimately change practice, not just learn more about how a particular enzyme has been phosphorylated in a, a yeast cell, which is sort of my background in the past, which has its place in the world, but I'm much more interested in the practical research today. Uh, and certainly at a much bigger level, the, the world of policy. Uh, if you look at most of our health problems, you can track it back down potentially to an individual level, but it's our broader environment that has a major influence upon that having more involvement at the policy level of from the food supply through through government regulation through uh, priorities for health funding can have a dramatic impact at an individual level because of the population level that dietitians work at in the policy field and for a career area even outside of the traditional uh, triad of, of clinical food service and, and community and public health areas of dietetics. I think a really strong area for dietitians to be involved with is more the entrepreneurial world. And of course, when I mention that, I'm talking about um, using social media, using traditional media to build up a, a, a following, which may have commercial uh, tie-ins, which is perfectly okay if you've got a good product to be selling, but making use of that space uh, to sell your own brand. Uh, to sell your own message, but still staying true to your profession and to your training, which in, ultimately we all got into dietetics for a very similar reason. And we all want a very passionate about what we do. We'll have a fairly similar message we want to sell, uh, to, to give to the people, but how we go about doing that is quite individual. And the world of media and social media and entrepreneurship is a good white thing for dietitians and new grads to be exploring more. Hmm. Yeah, that's very interesting, Tim. I really like your take on things there. Um, so if you could change one thing in the nutrition or food industry, what would it be? The thing I would, I would, would like to change is the influence the food industry has at, at a government level. Um, it's an extremely powerful lobby group, uh, the food industry, and that's normally, I'm talking about you know, the Australian Food and Grocery Council. So that obviously represents all the major players. Uh, at its heart, they are a group that are interested in making profit, and I fully support that. You know, All businesses should be able to entitled to make profit, but it's to the detriment many times of our overall health. Uh, and they will actively you know, block and try and water down any in good initiatives that are aimed to try and improve our access to, to healthier foods and to eat better. So it's that larger level of influence I'd like to see less of. At the same time, for them to make lots of money with promoting, using the marketing budgets for healthier ways for us to eat and promoting healthier products overall, not just dealing with whatever they think will sell at that particular time, filling it with a lot of rubbish and then trying to water down any government initiatives to try and uh, pull in what they're doing. So that would be the one thing I'd like to do. So it's a much, much bigger thing. Hence, seeing more dietitians involved at the policy level would be great. Yeah, great, Tim. And I know you do post about various aspects of this um, on Thinking Nutrition, always sharing your views about, I guess, the latest um, announcements or the la latest uh, changes in policy. Um, so thank you so much for sharing that. And also, thank you so much for being with us today. It has been so fantastic to chat to you and get your spin on 
dietetics and practice and research and learn a little bit more about what happens behind thinking nutrition. Thank you very much, Kate, and I encourage yourself and, and a lot of your, your fellow students who might be listening to this to, to actually get involved on, on social media, do your little bit to add your voice and grow your following over time. So uh, it's been wonderful to speak to you and uh, very much enjoyed uh, the chat today. And I'd also like to say thank you to all of our dedicated listeners for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed the episode and that it was able to provide value to you. And if you did, it would be much appreciated if you could leave a review for us and also pass this podcast on to your colleagues and friends. And also don't forget to subscribe to the Dietitian Connection podcast so that you can automatically get the new episode each week. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time for another great episode of the Dietitian Connection podcast.